All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. Is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Okay, welcome to today's episode where we're going to sit down and chat with a registered social worker, a counselor, someone with 30 years of experience working in government and not-for-profit both here in Canada and North America and in Australia. Her work spans the spectrum, really, of helping services, and from mental health to suicide prevention, awareness and intervention as a trainer. Uh, she's worked in domestic violence, training and development, culture change, family systems, child protective services, does a lot of work with conflict resolution, uh, communication skill development, you name it, she's experienced it and has done a lot of work in it, both as a practitioner and as a trainer. We had a really wide-ranging conversation about helping services and about you know some really tangible, practical advice for things like anxiety. Um, so I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Shelley Qualtieri as much as I did. Shelley, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. I am really pleased to be here chatting with you today. Yeah, well, thank you for carving out some time. Why don't you let the listeners know kind of who you are and what you do in a nutshell? You know, your one-minute, yep. your two-minute kind of pitch, what... Uh, Mm-hmm. What do you do? Yeah. Well, I do a little bit of everything. Um, so I'm a registered social worker, and mainly I focus on private practice. So supporting individuals from as young as eight through to adults, working on things, supporting them with things such as anxiety, depression, thoughts, behaviors of suicide, uh, communication skills, relationships, really all that human connecting kind of stuff. The other part of my role is working with the Center for Suicide Prevention. I do a lot of research, support, and community engagement, hence my passion in my private practice Mm -hmm. around that realm. And then I work for a great organization called the Crisis Trauma Resource Institute and Achieve Center, doing a lot of facilitation and training around supervision, leadership, difficult conversations. So it's nice staying really in the loop uh, and very up-to-date with the newest of research and working with groups as well as individuals. Hey guys, this is a quick little after-the-fact edit in. I'm just going to let you know, give you a heads up that we start this conversation off with a conversation about suicide. And that's a pretty heavy topic. So I just wanted to give you a heads up that for the first five, seven minutes, uh, we're going to dig into some of the statistics around suicide, but also some of the responses and things that you can think about as a parent or as a caregiver or as someone who may encounter suicidality in your own life or in the lives of the people around. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. What a lot of people don't know or realize is that the suicide rate is actually highest for men aged 40 to 65. Yeah, I saw some of those statistics the other day. And that, uh, why? What's what's going on? 
Yeah. Well, when we think about suicide and some of the things, just speaking specifically about Alberta, right, when we think about what's happening here, that is the age range of individuals that has been hit quite significantly with layoffs over the last five years, which then in turn is us often the peak of their careers or, you know, getting into more senior levels. It's the ages of people having families or just finishing raising families and having individuals in university, right? Kids in university and used to living a lifestyle that, you know, maybe they had the the big home and the boat and the, and the house and they have to make some of those significant financial changes. Um, and then there's a lot of shame that comes along with that, that layoff uh, and then breakdown in relationships. And so all of those things bundled into one package can feel really heavy as well as it's not really been easy for people to find work, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in our province. And the one thing that is so important for people to know is that the one most significant protective factor in someone not attempting is talking about suicide. And a lot of men in that age group uh, tend to still not want to talk about their emotions and some of the big heavy stuff uh, that's impacting them because they feel like maybe sometimes they should carry that weight on their shoulders, you know, and you and I who work in these fields know it's important for everyone, male, female, teenager, senior, to talk about those emotions and feel empowered that there are choices uh, for them. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about the other end of the spectrum, the the young younger mm-hmm. kids that, you know, as young as five, that's a startling statistic as somebody who has young young children, um, mm-hmm. but not out of the realm. I mean, I've been working in some elementary schools recently, and there's been, you know, grade three kids, grade four kids, grade five kids, thoughts of suicidality. And, um, and actually, yeah. one of our clients lost a kid um, in high school um, a little while mm-hmm. ago. And so that's certainly there and it's certainly prevalent. So what are some things? Because yeah. yeah. you know, lots of parents are listening to this, and mm-hmm. on the edge of their seat, they're wondering, "Okay, what do we do?" Right? If we if we're yeah. concerned, um, so to shift gears just a, a little bit to kind of a you're, yeah. you're a parent and you're worried about it. What mm-hmm. what are some of the steps? How do you how do you go about yeah. that conversation? Yeah, and obviously it's age dependent, right? But we want to talk to them about it because yeah. again, we know the number one uh, protective factor is having conversations and being okay as a parent to open up the door to talking about death uh, and and suicide. Again, statistically, suicide is the second leading cause of death for teenagers, right? Ages 12 through to 24, second leading cause of death. Um, And we do know that, you know, unfortunately, even in our province last year, we had a young girl who who died by suicide. uh, And that was, you know, fairly well broadcast over the media. And I think the thing that often comes up as well is that parents don't realize that kids that young could potentially be having those thoughts. Sometimes it comes from experiences that have happened within the family home. So for example, a parent who has maybe attempted and they've, the children have heard or seen this happen within their family home. Sometimes it's in and around trauma. Sometimes there is early signs of, of mental health that have been going on um, for a child, really opening that door to having conversations um, with them. And when we start looking at, you know, sort of some of the some of the history and some of the backstories, I work with lots of parents in my practice who have teenagers, 10 or, you know, 13, 14 years old who have had uh, attempts 
of suicide. And a lot of them are really fearful to even open the door to have that conversation because they feel like if I talk about it, it's going to put their thought in their head. Mm -hmm. And we absolutely know that is not the case, not the case at all. Um, That talking about it is actually something that can help them feel safe and being you, you being comfortable as a parent to be able to, to have the dialogue about it, right? Uh, we also we also know through research that a first degree relative, so if a parent dies by suicide, that increases the risk of the child having attempts um, and behaviors of suicide as well. Mm-hmm. So there are those layers, right, that we we add in there when we're thinking about children and suicide. If we back up a little bit from suicide, because that seems to be, mm-hmm. you know, a pretty acute manifestation of yeah. things that are going wrong in somebody's life. Um, yeah. And, you know, I used to work in addictions a lot, and that was a similar kind of perspective is like the addiction is often a symptom of underlying, underlying distress, underlying, like you say, mental health concerns, trauma, you know, all of these things. These are just the, and like you say, you know, men these days in Alberta, you know, are at higher risk, not because of anything to do with them, but into the context that they're, they find themselves in. Right. And so it's very contextual. Let's talk maybe a bit about anxiety and depression, other things that I'm sure are prevalent in your, in your practice. What, what are some of your thoughts around it? What are, Mm -hmm. again, just generally speaking this, this podcast is about power and one aspect of power is our personal power and personal power is the ability to affect change in your own life Mm -hmm. and to be able to take action. You know, we'll we'll commonly call it autonomy or self-efficacy or, you know, we'll we'll wrap some language around it. Um, Yeah. But what do you, what do you do in your practice around helping people with anxiety and depression and, or Mm -hmm. showing up at the door because things aren't going well in their life? Like, let's face it, nobody goes to a counselor or a coach or anybody because things are just smashingly well and they're achieving all their goals (laughs) and relationships are great and and all of that. So can you walk us through what you think about, um, or maybe what your common typical journey looks like in your practice. Yeah. So, I mean, I do see a lot of individuals, again, uh, that come in with anxiety and depression. And I guess in the counseling world, we call anxiety and depression the best of friends. I'm sure you've heard that before as well. So where one shows up at the party, uh, unfortunately, the other one is likely to arrive at some point or another. So when I'm working with people, especially around um, that anxiety, depression piece of it, we kind of look at it in relation to a little bit of history. What has gotten to this point? Some people will come in saying, I felt this way my whole entire life. I don't want medication. How do I deal with it? What are the tools? And when we take a look and back things up a little bit, we can very often, and I'm not going to say always, but very often pinpoint a few times that they have had big challenges come in their world and they haven't had the tools to be able to manage them. Also, I talk a lot with the people that I support around what's in their toolbox. What were they given as children and youth from their parents as tools to deal with some of the yucky, big, heavy stuff that that shows up. And again, oftentimes we, you know, we make the list of, of the tools in their box and we take a look at what power do you have over these emotions and these choices? Because like with suicide, I do think there are times that we don't realize the tools that are in the box that we go to regularly. And what choices do we have to pick other ones out of the box to at least trial? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I I also think it's important to note, though, that with anxiety and depression, there is absolutely in 
some instances a need for medication. So I don't want to bypass that and say, oh, I've got all the tools and the tricks and we can make this go away. Um, because for some people, that's just not the case, right? And there is medication that is necessary, needed in order to practice the tools because we still can't do the work sometimes if you're in such a significant place of depression or anxiety that you can't process in certain ways to be able to move forward with trialing new tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with my practice as well, with every session, um, we talk about goals. What do we want to achieve with this, with this anxiety, depression? How do we want to manage it? What is it going to look like for you in three months time? Small goals. We're not talking forever. We're talking small goals because that's a lot of times people come in and they think you're going to solve this forever. Um, but our lives change. Our children grow up, our jobs change. And so we practice small bite-sized pieces and I provide tools at the end of every session for them to take away and come back and let me know how's it working. Yeah, I think that, you know, that kind of personality overhaul, like I want this thing to be completely eliminated, um, has people often reaching for that one solution or that easy thing, which makes medication really tempting. And so, yeah. you know, I usually liken it to, you know, a, a life jacket, you've fallen out of the boat, sometimes you need a mm -hmm. life jacket so that you can get to the surface. But once you're at the surface, yeah. you still need to swim, right? You still need to know which Absolutely. direction land is. You need to have like something to aim at and, and get moving. So, um, yeah, I yeah. run into that quite a bit with, yeah. with parents and, you know, so what, what advice do you have, mm -hmm. um, for maybe for practitioners? I mean, you've been doing this, mm -hmm. like you said, for 30 years and yeah. there's a bit of a crisis in the helping professions. Mm -hmm. I would call it. I think it's yeah. fair to say that it's a crisis of, of engagement and a crisis of, you know, sustained sustaining high levels of motivation to do the work. You know, yes. I work a lot with teachers, um, frontline educators, direct service providers who are, they bear the brunt of, you know, a lot of the, the needs in society around helping yeah. people cope with this stuff. Absolutely. And so what's been helpful in your practice besides, you know, stepping into your own private practice and taking some control yeah. of your work, which, you know, I certainly did and it's been helpful. Um, but when yeah. you're, when you think back, some of those things that were most meaningful, for you over mm -hmm. the years that made the most difference in your, in your own practice for your own wellness, because we're obviously not immune, you know, the, no, the parents whose kids are suffering, suffering from anxiety and depression. I'm like, you need to go talk to somebody too. Like this isn't yeah. a, <laughs> like this problem that does not just, can't just locate this inside of one person. No, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, because of the different spheres I've worked in and the different conversations I've had and, you know, trying out different counselors myself at different times throughout my life and seeing, you know, which ones really worked. And I think the big thing for me was probably the last five to seven years really listening. You know, I was at a high level uh, in a not-for-profit and not doing the direct client work as I had in the past. So being able to step back and really listen in a different way. And the one thing I kept hearing over and over again, whether it was in homelessness or working, you know, in domestic violence was that it's great to see a counselor. It's great to go and talk, like, you know, that narrative therapy and strength-based approach. But what do I do next? What do I do? It's great because I can also go for a coffee with a friend or <laughs> talk to my mom, right? Yep. But what do I do? And so what I've really found, whether it's been through my private, pra private practice or when I was in not-for-profit in the last um, couple agencies I've worked at is what tools can we provide people to take away and feel like they can actually 
make some change and has some choice in their life to empower them. Because ultimately at the end of it, I can't do that. You can't do that. We need to provide them again with those tools in their box to feel empowered. And I think that's the one thing that I, when I'm, you know, working with new, new social work students, or I have people in a group setting and say, you know, I've just been doing this for a couple of years. And I hear your experience and the stories you've got, what, what, what looks different. It's, it's the tools. People want something tangible to take away, whether it's a parent sitting in a classroom saying, how do I help my child read? How do I help them not feel fearful of coming to school? How do I build the skills around the bully and get them to, to deal with that? They need the tools and it's up to us as professionals and parents to build those in for them. Yeah, no, I certainly, I agree with that on the one hand. And mm-hmm. I look at the research around therapeutic factors that drive yeah. change and it yeah. has as much to do with the relationship as it does with yes. the pieces. So I think there's an inherent tension there or there's a there's a balancing act or there's maybe there's, mm-hmm. you know, we live in this world where the pendulum just swings back and forth and it probably should yeah. land somewhere in the middle where you are, yeah. <laughs> you know, a safe place to land and build relationship whilst offering tools, I think is probably the the combination that's missing. And I agree on the, yeah. you know, we've, we've worked so hard to meet people where they're at that sometimes we get stuck there as a system yes. or we get stuck there as practitioners and believing in where they can go. I think is really important. And then seeing what, what yeah. tools do you need? Right. Cause we all need, we all yeah. need those tools. We don't know everything. I'm constantly seeking out mm-hmm. new tools in my, for my Me own too. toolkit. Right. So, yes. um, but maybe talk yeah. a little bit about the, yeah. your perspective on the, on the therapeutic Alliance rapport, kind of the relational yeah. aspect of mm-hmm. the work. Cause I think that that's probably for new practitioners. What's the hardest is the work is so deeply personal. Right. And yeah. because you are a tool as well, right. The, the relationship and yes. your ability to be present with people is, is pretty critical. So thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I a hundred percent agree with that relationship piece of it. I mean, when I'm doing, whether it's group training I'm doing or whether I'm sitting, you know, one-in-one, um, in a, a counseling session with somebody, you can tell if you have that connection with the room or if you have that connection with that person. And if they don't feel safe, we already know they're not going to open up to you. And, you know, I will be totally transparent. There's been people that have sat in my office and, and I haven't necessarily felt comfortable with them for whatever reason. And I know that they're not going to book another session because Mm -hmm. we haven't had that connection. That is absolutely fine because you want to, to feel that safety. Um, and to be able to to connect. The other thing that I think is really important is offering people, you know, that that free 15 or 30 minute phone call to see, am I the fit? Is this going to work? Because there's been times, you know, way back 30 years ago when I was starting this work and I thought, why don't they like me? Why can't, mm-hmm. why can't, aren't they listening to what I'm, you know, why aren't they changing? Asking them why, aren't to they do? Change? why aren't they changing? Yeah. Why aren't they changing? <laughs> <laughs> and I actually um, have always had mentors throughout my career. And I had a mentor say to me, well, you're not connecting with them. And this was, you know, a long time ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And I said, well, what do you mean? I don't understand what that means. I'm, I'm giving them tools. I am you know, talking to them about the pathway and the way that they're supposed to be doing this. And she said, well, that's the problem. You're not supposed to be telling them the way they're supposed to be doing it is you're supposed to be supporting them along the pathway. Mm-hmm. And I think that is such an important piece as well. 
some people come in and they haven't done the practice and they haven't done the tools and that's okay. I don't take that personally. Mm -hmm. They're in a different pathway. Yeah. I, I also have benefited from mentors and, you know, I was super fortunate to land in a residential addictions treatment center at a place like Enviro's Mm -hmm. right out of the gates because you get a ton of practice really quick when you're working in a residential or like you worked in a, in a prison, right? And so you get that yeah. interaction, you get that feedback coming at you really fast about the quality of the relationship. Oh, and uh, yeah, I remember someone saying, you know, if you own the change process, you also have to take ownership of the pain that that person is in. Right. And so that stuck with me and, yes. I, and I, I was blessed to get that piece, you know, pretty early in the career. It's like, this isn't my change. Right? My job here is to create yeah. the conditions in which change is more likely and more possible, right? But I can't own the fact if somebody mm-hmm. leaves a session and doesn't follow through or doesn't practice the tools, you know, I'll own what I can own. So that, I think there's a, that piece of it for the average practitioner in the helping yeah. professions where we we latch on to the change that the individual is going to make and whether they succeed or fail. And we judge our own success and failure based on that. Um, but it's, yes. a, it's a tension between taking responsibility for and not, right? Like how do you balance that piece around? Like what are you, what do you think you're responsible yeah. for? when you're in relationship with somebody who's coming, especially when it's something acute like suicidality. Um, mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. how do you balance that? Yeah, yeah. You know, for me, all the areas I work in now, I'm super passionate about. I'm always doing research. I'm always listening to podcasts. I'm always talking to people, whether it's professionals that are in the field, going to conferences, or people that I'm seeing in groups or practice. And the other thing that I have found is really important is tailoring it to the individual. So whether you're, you know, you're trained in uh, narrative therapy or, Pick you know, no matter what your CBT, exactly. Are, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it looks different all the time for people. Uh, no matter what you're trained in, actually showing them that you have spent the time preparing for the next session, you know, I always do a touch base on how did it go? And oh yeah, last time we talked about and remembering a little bit about them personally, right? We're not just about doing the the professional sort of side of the work, but really getting to know them just as a human being because we are all creatures of connection. I say that all the time. Uh, and we really just want to be heard and listened to and felt like someone or feel like someone is um, cares about us. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, whether it's your first session or your 10th session with me, uh, I think it's so important for professionals to really prepare. I mean, I remember once I went to see a counselor when, uh, I had a, a death in my family and she sat down and she said, well, let me tell you what it was like for when, you know, this person passed away in my world. And I thought, we're here for you, not for me. And that's supposed to be totally the opposite. So <laughs> It's about the person sitting in front of you or the group in front of you and um, making them feel not only safe, but heard and individualizing their program. Yeah, I think that that, you know, I had a principal not that long ago said they're trying to build a one size fits one approach to their as opposed to a one size fits all and that like so many programs and approaches are one size fits all. And then yes. when somebody doesn't do well, I know we were guilty of it. You know, somebody's not doing well in addictions treatment. We would use words like, well, they're ambivalent or they're not treatment ready. Yeah. Or they're like, we would justify <laughs> resistant. It. resistant treatment, <laughs> resistant depression. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's just crappy yeah. treatment, right? Like yeah. at some level, like that's just like, how can we blame this client for their, yeah. <laughs> for our failures to provide individualized care? Like that, yeah. 
that's a little bit rant I could go on. It drives me a little bit crazy in the, yeah, uh, no, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is about the goals, right? So I'll have someone come in and say, um, I want to get along better with my partner. Um, I want to communicate better with my partner. Okay, great. Well, you're, you're one of two <laughs> and what can we do to focus on, on you and those communication skills, right? What do we break it down at bite-sized pieces? Because again, kind of like setting the goals in short term, um, changing your communication skills is not easy. So, you know, I've had people say, well, I'm going to go home today and I'm just not going to get defensive. <laughs> okay. Well, was that let easy. me see how that's yeah. going to work. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. raise my voice to my children as we yeah. struggle to get out the door. <laughs> Right, sure you're not, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so saying that, actually, there's a lot of small nuggets within it. Why are we getting defensive? What are the triggers within that? What is the environment, right? Breaking it down to really small bite-sized pieces. So then we can actually start taking bite-sized steps towards towards that. And um, it's been pretty amazing seeing some of the the change that has come out of uh, the people that I support and work with, uh, breaking it down to small pieces and getting to do it, you know, my way in relation <laughs> to practice, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not, not for them, but I mean, in being able to have my own private practice to support people and be able to say, we're going to do and meet the goals that you want and that you need. And these are the steps that we can, we can do, right? Not, just okay here's the package here's the group go not something that's been handed to you by a yeah by an institution or an organization that has the best intention right like i never meet an organization or a group of practitioners no. that don't have great intentions that have brought them to the work absolutely but i often talk to clients yeah. you know mm -hmm. as we we're working doing some addictions treatment outcome and evaluation work recently and part of it was you know let's get in let's interview some clients about their their experience and yes. their intake experience their experience through treatment and yeah. It was so misaligned with what the intentions were. You know, clients mm -hmm. are suffering in treatment. I'm like, this is not the point. Like something, there's a mismatch here between what yeah. you're hoping for and what's happening. And it was everything to do with how they had structured and institutionalized and, you know, built norms and things that were more for the institution or if we're going to be yeah. honest, more for the staff, right? Some, and I've yeah. worked in residential. Or the funder. Or the funder, who knows, but it's somebody else's. Yeah. We're not centering the client. And yeah. so Absolutely. we go into these organizations and they have clients centered on the wall. Yeah, like, I love yeah. that. <laughs> how, how is that client centered? Can you help me understand how that decision? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, and I think, I mean, there's absolutely place and space for all of those big places, big, you know, organizations, agencies, because, you know, we all need different levels of support, as well as, you know, funding um, and pay payments for people can be a challenge, right, to come and see a private practice counselor is not as accessible as maybe a not-for-profit that offers free services. You know, there can often be long wait lists sometimes, and we need to get in quicker. So I think that's important as a, as a counselor as well. And for me, I think with the benefit of all the different places and spaces I've worked is that I do offer sliding scale because I don't want these to be barriers for people either. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes those places we get the counselor that we get, we don't get a choice. And if all those things we've talked about, that empowerment, that safety, the um, molding to a person doesn't come, come with that. So that's important for private practice people to be aware of as well. 
Yeah, no, totally. Um, can we circle back to the goal setting? I'm curious yeah. around, because um, you mentioned it a couple of times, it's an important part mm-hmm. of your practice is that people walk out yeah. with really clear goals and some tools. To, yeah. um, so I heard mm-hmm. um, bringing the time horizon in as an important piece, making it a bit closer so it's not this like daunting thing um, and breaking yeah. it down into bite-sized pieces. Uh, what else? You got it. What else do you think about yeah. when you're when you're setting goals with clients? Do you have a, a I know that, you know, I kind of have an allergic reaction to smart goals. Um, and I no, I don't use smart goals. <laughs> yeah, you can if you want to. I mean, people use them. I've just never found them very effective. <laughs> oh, hey, speaking of smart goals, a lot of people that I meet and a lot of my friends and colleagues uh, in the past in the nonprofit and education sectors, some of their goals are to build a thriving business, to step out of the nonprofit sector or their work for an employer and to move into ownership and self-employment for themselves. It's kind of like Shelly and I have done. And I get asked for coffee more often than not, probably once a week. I'm fielding a request to go for coffee and I try and do it as much as I can. But obviously I'm also busy with this type of thing, podcasting and work and family. And so I decided to do a bit of a test run and put together a online course. It's a five module, five day first week of February, the 3rd to the 7th, and it's called Build a Thriving Business. And it's really for people like Shelly and I, or if you've spent your life in the nonprofit, the non-governmental organization, or the education sector, it's a chance for you to pick up some of the tips and strategies and really practical things that you need to smooth out that transition from being employed to being self-employed, from being an employee to moving into ownership for yourself. And so if you're interested in that, just go to jeffcoulard.com, www.jeffcoullard.com, and click on the podcast button, open up any random podcast, and on the sidebar, there will be a link to the course, and you can check that out, or you can uh, find it on my Facebook page, or follow me on Twitter, and, uh, and get the links that way as well. So if that's something that interests you, by all means, I encourage you to check it out. And let's dig back into goal setting with Shelly. But what yeah. do you, how do you set goals? Let's mm-hmm. walk through if yeah. I, if I want to make a change in my life. Um, yeah. How do you get me from what, like yeah. that big kind of like something's wrong to what am I doing when I leave this session? Yeah. So obviously it's dependent, independent of every single person that I see. So sometimes I, well, every time I do an intake, I do an initial intake with people and that is an hour and a half long. And I spend that time asking them questions about them, history in relation to counseling, previous counseling, things that have been helpful for them, tools they've already got in their box. So, you know, it's really focused on them. It's not my checkbox of, Okay, X, Y, and Z. We've done right? informed it's consent. Very tailored. Checked. Yeah. Off we go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, we we definitely talk about them, but it's also a really important time. I let everybody know that they can assess me as well. Right. Ask me any questions about counseling and and history and all that kind of piece of it and how I work as a professional. Then at the end of our first session. Typically, sometimes an intake takes two, two sessions, depending on the stuff mm-hmm. that they come in with, because some people have more stuff, right? Which is great. Uh, maybe not for them, but <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of food it's, for it's counseling. Lo- exactly. Um, ask them, what are your, your kind of top three goals you would like to achieve if we were to work together for three months? So we're focusing on just a very short time frame because... Also, even though people do come to private practice, 
benefits often cover anywhere from six to 10 sessions, which can be about that three month time frame. And I want them to get as much as they possibly can and achieve those goals in that time frame. Sometimes that's not possible. And so we really focus on what is it you want to, to achieve. So I'll have people say, I want to be able to have some tools to manage my anxiety. I want to be able to have some tools of how do I talk to my child or teenager about their thoughts of suicide? How do I talk to my partner about our relationship? And so then we work from there on those goals. Something that I use all the time that I love are the basic emotion circles because people will often come in saying, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling fearful. But when we dig down, what does that really mean in relation to the communication with your your partner? What does that really mean in relation to the talking to your child about suicide? And over the course of the week or so till I see them the next time, we first start out with, let's talk about what some of those emotions are that are really showing up and triggering you in each of these sort of situations that pop up. And I want you to just kind of keep a a journal or document it on your phone or however you do that. So then they come back and it's really interesting. Without fail, there is always a pattern of three or four emotions that are consistently showing up that are creating barriers for the conversation. Again, as you talked about the safety and this connection, human beings are creatures of connection. We want to be heard. Mm -hmm. In whatever relationship that is, whatever one that is. And so it's really important to understand the emotion behind the behavior. And then once we've got that started, then I tailor it from there. So it might mean that within their goals at the end of the next session, they are going to practice one sentence to say to themselves to be able to enter a conversation with their partner in a different way. We might practice talking about suicide. What are the myths? What are the facts? How can we go home and be a little bit more brave in having this conversation? Because ultimately, a lot of times when people are struggling with externals, with others, they just don't know how to have the conversation. The emotions are really a challenge Mm -hmm. that are getting in the way, right? Um, If it's within self then we'll focus a lot more on, um, I like CBT. So I do use some CBT tools, right, in and around. What was the thought that brought on the emotion? And let's dig that part a little bit. So with every piece of practice, again, it's bite-sized, and it's only on one tool at a time, and then I layer them. So maybe by session five, they're still reflecting on the emotion, but they're doing a much more um, intensive tool or practice, that I tailor to them. I'm not a big paperwork kind of gal. There's (laughs) lots of people who say, yeah, worksheets. I have a lot of people who call and say, I see you do CBT. I've done it. I don't want to do worksheets. So I'm not a big worksheets. It's really a lot of internal self-reflection. Yeah. It sounds like you do a lot of contextualizing, making sense of the behavior or making sense of the emotion as opposed to, you know, a lot of people can say, this doesn't make sense. I don't know why I'm sad or I don't know why. And it's like, oh yeah, it has to make sense. Right. We just, we just don't know what, like why it makes sense yet, but that, that becomes the first step because jumping too far ahead into goal setting without the the context behind it, I think is pretty ineffective. Well, I've seen it in addiction treatment, right? Where the goal is to not relapse or the goal is to be sober. 
And it's like, okay, that, right. yeah, and that's an outcome of you yeah. know, some behavior change. Let's, let's peel that back a little bit and figure out what's, uh, what's yeah. driving that. And not, and not even a little bit, a lot, right? All, all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do a lot of whiteboard work. Um, because I think, you know, that's the other thing, um, when I see people sitting down one-on-one in my, in my office, and this is experiences that I've had, uh, you know, when I worked government, not for profit as well is we can talk about it, but when we actually see it it in front of us, draw it out on the right board or like draw the spiral that is happening in my world. And, um, people will often say, wow, that visual, like I get it now. I okay and then we see the work really start to happen mm-hmm. uh, and usually that happens you know by session three or four we're doing some some heavy whiteboard work and we have some big sessions um, where people are going through some heavy stuff but I think it's also really important to make sure that they're leaving feeling really safe and that they leave on you know that that positive note of meeting the goal achieving the goal and working through it because you know counseling like you said it, it's not a a place where we come to experience lots of happy things. We're working through some yucky, muddy stuff. And uh, how to, important to get it is, to yeah, to be able to walk away with a sense of hopefulness, though, because I yeah, think, every session, yeah, yeah. I don't know what the stats are. Something like the average number of sessions is one, and it's not because we're brilliant at it. It's because people don't like talking about their problems, and when you come in and you're saturated with this problem talk it's like you leave feeling kind of yeah. crappy you know sometimes crappier yeah. than when you walked in and that's yeah. you know i wouldn't want to yeah. go back myself if that's my experience no i've recently had uh you know a, a person that i've been working with and they came in and they said do i need to tell you my whole story i went and saw my last counselor and they wanted to know the whole story and then i was just in a tailspin for the next three days because I couldn't process all of it. And if I have to do that, I don't know that I want to be here. And I said, nope, that's really not the way that I work. We'll start with the initial intake where you can ask me lots of questions and I can ask you lots of questions. But at the end of it, you're still going to get some practice so you can see how I might work. And that really gives people a sense of power and control. Um, When people can feel or see something tangible in relation to what their emotions mean, they feel like they have so much more power over their situation when I've had so many people say, oh, I'm not crazy. This actually is happening <laughs> for a reason. I'm actually doing this for a reason. Yes, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, you can stop beating yourself up and feeling bad Absolutely. for having this, develop this pattern to, to cope. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Awesome. What, uh, what are some of those skills that you think are essential skills for for kids so thinking back again to parents or teachers Mm -hmm. or people who are engaged with with youth if we want to Mm -hmm. kind of build some resiliency capacity capability around Mm -hmm. emotional health um yeah what are some of those you know practices or skill sets that you that you think about yeah i think three things come to top of mind when i think about youth and kiddos and uh there's lots you know, lots of research coming in and around it, around the social media piece of it. We know that anxiety and depression is higher in youth and children than it's it's ever been. And that they feel more lonely than they ever have, even though they're more connected than they've ever been. And yeah, connected, whatever connected might mean. <laughs> and um, that social media piece of it. And therefore, suicide rates are, are increasing. And there's a real lack of, of connection. And 
I think from my experiences and from some of the research that, that I'm involved with is spending time really connecting. And I know that sounds kind of cliche, but really spending time getting to know your kids and whether that's dinners together or whether that is just, you know, going for a walk or even sitting on the couch at the end of the day for five minutes, really trying to have a conversation. And I know some people might say, well, I work all the time and I'm busy and, you know, they just don't want to talk to me. They would (laughs) rather have their phone in front of me, in front of them. Yep. Yep. And as parents, it's part of our responsibility to ensure we're doing that engagement, which might sound tough and some parents might not like that very much. But unfortunately, it's the harsh reality of our world is that we need to be spending time connecting and because they're not going to come and do it with us. Yeah, no, that's uh, when I think about the experience at a residential addiction treatment program, I'm convinced that the effectiveness had as much to do with the big square wooden kitchen tables that we sat around three times a day and connected meaningfully as people and or played a game of crazy eights and sat around the campfire like all the the external factors to therapy you know certainly they were getting value from the therapeutic intention but the connection that they were able to make with you know helping loving professionals and also each other and themselves as a result of that, I think was, you know, I think that was the, you know, I'm pretty convinced that the dogs actually did as much good work as the youth workers did. You know, I often see kids (laughs) sitting down by by the lake, petting a dog. I'm like, Oh, therapy happening right now. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, um, I used to work a lot with families, especially when I was working in child welfare. Um, but also in some of my other, uh, roles that I've had back here in Canada did, I've done a lot of family work and, families would bring in their their kids or their youth and say they're going to go in for counseling sessions and we need you to help fix them mm-hmm. right help fix them or or make them better or do what you need to do um and when we would ask the parents to come back in and meet with us and talk about home life and how they're engaging and supporting their children or their youth um through the process it's so important for the parents to be just as much, if not more engaged in the therapy or the process as their children. Because if you're giving the kids or these teens these new tools or talking through the tough stuff, and then they get home and they're going back to the exact same environment where the parents are shut down and they're not engaged and they're not having conversations, and uh, you're going to get nowhere. You're really going to get nowhere. Yeah, we used to talk about changing the piece of the puzzle. But the puzzle doesn't Absolutely. shift, right? And it's like that's either not going to fit, or it's going to shift back to fit the old context, right? Again, behaviors as context. Um, so connection is yeah. an important ingredient. Yeah, um, absolutely. What else? Yeah. Well, I think for everybody else, learning what some of the new tools are, because if you're one person and you're getting the new tools and you're wanting to change, well, that's going to create some some friction, mm-hmm. right? Because you're trying to do things in a different way. Uh, and try and implement your new your new tools, whether that's through conversation or or trying to talk to your parents or right do something differently. If they're not learning the new tools, then it's a one sided conversation. Not, yeah. You got it. It's not going to go very far in being able to to make those change safety and being able to have the conversation with whether it's the parent or your or the parent to the child, even starting that conversation or even with yourself, right? That self-talk that we do of, I can be brave, I can walk through this, 
you know, I can get to the other side, I think is important. And the other thing I think is it's okay to do self-care and work on you. And I always liken this to um, the oxygen mask, you know, the oxygen mask falling from the airplane. And they always say, you know, every flight they say, put your oxygen mask on first because you're not going to be a help to anybody else um, in, in the plane, whether it's your children or your partner. And I think it's the exact same way in life. And I think a lot with moms is that we forget about ourselves and we need to give to the job, the kids, the partner. And I see so many women in my practice that come in just depleted and feeling absolutely guilty about even coming to an hour of counseling (laughs) to figure out what's going on for them. Uh, whereas, it might sound to some people really hard, but we need to be number one. Every single one of us needs to be number one on our agenda because then when we're giving to number two and three and four, we're going to give so much more, mm-hmm. so much more. So not carrying the guilt of taking care of yourself. Yeah. There's a, a saying in the right use of power framework that self-care isn't optional. It's ethical. When, Absolutely. So when you have responsibility, if you're a parent, you're an educator, you're a CEO of a company, it doesn't actually matter. As soon as you have power over the experience of other people, you mm-hmm. and part of that, like it's, it's a relational thing, right? So parent to kid, like, yes. it's not like, you know, I sometimes talk about my brother-in-law who's a heavy duty mechanic, right? The truck doesn't yeah. actually care if he's having a good day or bad day, like, cause, yeah. they, cause it's the tools in between them, right? Yeah. But when you're a counselor or you're a parent and you're not doing well, that there is no way tools to buffer that impact that you're going to have on that. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a critical piece. I think that we kind of, as a, as a society or communities, we kind of pretend that it's optional, right? It's this like, do it on Friday night, have a bath and Mm -hmm. go to yoga. And, but that just doesn't happen. Right. Because lots of, lots of reasons, or even if it does happen, it happens as much out of guilt, right? Going to the counselor, but feeling guilty about it. It's like this thing, one more thing I have to do, right. Yeah. Pile onto my already big list of things to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even for me, it was a lesson that took me some time to learn as well. Right. Mom, three kids work full time, uh, now stepping into my own, my own world of, you know, entrepreneurial, business. And um, it took some time to be reminded that when you take care of you, you have so much more energy for everybody else. And it's amazing how people can see that changing. And I've seen it, you know, in my private practice and in groups I've done that. Yeah, I've taken care of myself. And wow, I actually got dinner cooked and did all these great (laughs) things for other people that I wanted to do not had to do. Yeah, totally. No, I was fortunate. I got diagnosed with diabetes about eight years ago when my wife was uh, pregnant with our first kid. And so I have a daily reminder, like I've got, I can check my sugars and when they're up, it means I'm not doing like something's off. I'm not eating. I'm not exercising. I'm not. And it's, you know, one of those, you know, silver linings of something like that, um, that my self-care practice had to be improved, right? It wasn't, it was no longer optional. Um, And so that, you know, would I have wished that I had had that lesson earlier in my journey, maybe, but uh, Mm -hmm. blessed to have it nonetheless. So um, what about, I know you've probably got stuff to do and I've kept you on the line for about 45 minutes. So I want to, I want to close it off and thank you for participating in this podcast, but I also am interested in either Mm -hmm. bits of advice that you might have for practitioners about resources they should explore. Uh, So certainly I will 
point people in, in the direction of your website and you've got a podcast yeah. that is either out or it's coming out shortly. So I'll, I'll coming out in the new year, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. People can find listening. me also on, on social, right? I'm on all the different social platforms. So I'm posting different things all the time uh, for people to take a look at. But I think, I think a couple of things that I really want people to, to hear, uh, take care of you when you're taking care of you everybody else is going to be so much better taken care of. I think for those professionals, really take a look at the person that's sitting in front of you and ask, what do they need? Not what do I need or what do I need to practice, but what do they need so that I can provide that in the best, safest way I can for them. And some of the resources that I um, really love using are 211. I love two-on-one. People do not realize that there's so much different help um, within that for them. As well, actually, I find over this last recent while, I've been using the food bank and the good food box a lot for my clients. Mm. But also, there's some great um, websites. The uh, You Are Strong website is great for teenage girls and young women of power. Those are fantastic for for young girls who are wanting to build confidence and self-esteem. Lots of cool work around them. And then uh, the Good Guys website for the young guys. And of course, the Center for Suicide Prevention. (laughs) I've got an amazing website with lots and lots of resources for everybody on there. Awesome. Well, I will be sure to link to all of those and uh, point people in those directions. Uh, Shelly, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit down and chat with me. And uh, good luck with the private practice and your own podcast and everything that you're up to. I look forward to listening and to, and to reading more. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Have a great day. Big thank you to Shelly for spending almost an hour chatting with us today about a lot of different things and hopefully you took out as much from that episode as I did you know really practical tools and strategies and reminders if you're helping professional to really center the client the person who's sitting in front of you in your practice and to make sure that they're getting the tools that they need to make meaningful change happen in their life and speaking of tools and speaking of meaningful change today is Thursday and Thursdays are my newsletter day. So I send out a newsletter every week with a bunch of resources and tips and strategies and things to read and books and videos and all the things that I would like to share with you on a weekly basis to help move you forward in your life to make the type of changes that you're hoping to make. And so if that type of thing interests you, head on over to www.jeffcoulard, that's J-E-F-F-C-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D.com. And in the sidebar, on any podcast or blog post there should be a link to sign up to the newsletter and your usual reminder to share this episode if you found it helpful if you found this conversation with shelly enlightening or useful for you in your practice or your parenting or just life in general i would love it for you to share it with your network and so you can do that right through itunes or you can go to the blog post that has this podcast on it on my website and share it from there and i would appreciate it and be incredibly grateful if you did Thanks so much.